So my name is, is Scott Sauls, and uh, I am from Nashville, Tennessee, the other music city, and, uh, and uh, I have been a pastor at a church there called Christ Presbyterian Church now for about five years, came there by way of New York City, and uh, uh, we have great affection for your church, for your community, for your city. Uh, for your tribe, the Acts 29 network. I actually, um, I, I think, got this invitation primarily through Aaron Ivy. Aaron and I met at a retreat where I was speaking, and he was doing the music for uh, a sister church of yours in Dallas called the Village Church. And uh, Aaron and I met there for the first time and, and just became fast friends uh, since that point. We've actually been texting back and forth all day long. He's got all kinds of, um, you know, making fun of other people kind of things he wants to lob at your staff members and such. So uh, I got to catch, catch up with all you guys and tell you how Aaron's making fun of you from the other side of the pond. Uh, all in love, of course. But um, in any event, uh, uh, I am here tonight to talk about the most important claim that's ever been made in the history of the world. And, and that is the claim that Jesus Christ died rose from the dead, uh, and that that has significant uh, impact for each and every one of us. But before I do that, I want to read to us from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. And it says this, while they were still talking about this, and this is the disciples, the followers of Jesus, after they'd heard about, you know, stirrings that Christ had come up from the dead. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat here? They gave him a piece piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So uh, the news anchor, Peter Jennings, who I realize... Maybe over half of you have never heard of him because uh, you're too young. But Peter Jennings had a really, really long stretch as an American uh, journalist and news anchor. And he was also a a spiritually curious person. And one of the things that Peter Jennings said was this. I was raised with the notion that it was okay to ask questions. And it was okay to say, I'm not sure. I believe, but I'm not quite certain about the resurrection. And so according to the Bible, Peter Jennings and those like him, people who aren't quite sure about the resurrection, you believe in an existence of God, in a spiritual truth, in a cosmic something that, 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 that put us all here, uh, you're not quite sure about the resurrection and miracles and things like that. He was actually in good company. 
the disciples themselves, the followers of Jesus, those who'd spent the most time with him in his you know, most impactful years and spectacular years in many ways. It says in uh, Matthew 28, verse 17, that when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And then if you go to John chapter 20, you see Thomas, and history now refers to Thomas as doubting Thomas, but I think the more accurate term for Thomas was unbelieving Thomas, because what happened when the other disciples said, hey, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He's come up from the dead. Thomas said, until I see him with my own eyes, until I touch him with my own hands, I will not believe. And so if you have doubts, that's okay. That's normal. That's actually part of the human experience especially about things like the resurrection. But what I want to do, I guess, as I start off here, is to um, just show my hand and let you know that I've got an agenda. If, if you are suspicious, skeptical, resistant, et cetera, to this stuff, I hope that by the end of tonight, you're walking out thinking, maybe this isn't fake news after all. Maybe this is real. And if you do believe this stuff, if you have bought into it, I hope you walk out even more strengthened in that belief and conviction that all of this stuff is true or that, that, you know, like what the late Francis Schaeffer once said, there's only one reason to be a Christian, only one, and that's because it's true. And so what I want to do is uh, interact with two questions tonight. And, uh, and, and the questions are, is it true? And then second, who is it for, this resurrection, this coming up from the grave of Jesus Christ? So is it true? Uh, you know, we, we have two daughters, our 19-year-old Abby, um, she is in college now, but when she turned 12, we had a 12-year-old birthday celebration, and, you know, we're, we're cutting the cake and everything, and um, my wife, Patty, Abby's mom, said, you know, what are your thoughts on life now that you're the wise old age of 12? And Abby's response was this. She, she got all philosophical. She got on her philosophy face, and she said, you know, I've been thinking about this all day, and since you asked, Mom, I'm convinced now as a 12-year-old that all those happily ever after stories that you guys raised us on, those are really stories for people who are 11 and under. You know, she'd seen the light. You know, she'd lived enough life and seen enough of the real world at age 12 where, we, where she realized that the happily ever after story isn't the story that we experience because hard things happen, sickness, sorrow, pain, death. They're all gonna meet us and confront us eventually. And so she says, you know, this story, this happily ever after story, Cinderella or, you know, Beauty and the Beast or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever your, your, your story of choice is among all the fairy tales, says these are for kids 11 and under. And what I want to say is that the resurrection story, which, which is the happily ever after story to end all happily ever after stories, it's not just for kids 1 to 11. It's for, you know, as we say at Christmas, kids for, from 1 to 92 and, and, and even above 92. The older I get, the truer I believe this is. And the Bible, we'll start with the Bible and then we'll go to some other stuff. But the Bible belabors the point that this really happened, that Christ died, Christ rose from the dead, Christ appeared to over 500 people. And, and the Apostle Paul, who writes about a third of the New Testament in, in, in one of his letters called 1 Corinthians, 
in the 15th chapter, he makes a really bold statement. He says that if Jesus Christ did not bodily come up from the dead in time, space, history, then Christians of all people are the most pitiful people in the world. Because why give your life to this if, 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 if you know it's not true? And yet he went on after that to say, but you all know, this, those that he was writing to and, and those who were challenging Christianity in his time, he said, you all know that there are actually over 500 people out there who are still alive. You know where they are. You know how to find them. All of them will say the same thing, that they interacted with, with Jesus Christ after he came up from the dead, after he'd been buried you know, for, for, for uh, you know, three days, two nights-ish. And even here in, in our text tonight, verses 36 and following, it says that Jesus himself stood among them. They were startled and frightened. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? What Jesus is doing is he's trying to help them doubt their doubts. He's saying the most important thing you can do about the resurrection is to doubt your doubts. But I'm not just going to say that to you. I'm going to help you with that. And the way he helps them with that is he engages their senses. He says, See my hands and my feet. Touch me and see. He gets scientific with them. He gives them all this empirical evidence, right? See my hands and feet. Touch me and see. And then he showed them his hands and feet, it says. And then he asked, you got anything to eat? Then he took and ate some fish uh, in front of them to demonstrate the physicality of his existence, that he wasn't just some, you know, hallucination that they were having on an acid trip or something. Okay, so, so Peter, who was one of the people who walked closely with Jesus who, you know, before Christ, you know, came up from the dead, Peter was kind of a mix of, of, of loyalty and, 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 and cowardice. And, and, you know, when Jesus needed him most, he bailed on him. You know, and, and Peter had had a track record of, of being a coward. But after Christ comes up from the dead, he becomes one of the most bold human beings that ever, you know, lived. And, and, and he writes in one of his letters, which is also in the Bible, 2 Peter 1.16, he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then another friend of his, John, who is arguably, you know, Jesus' closest friend. He calls himself the beloved disciple because he, he was just so aware of how much affection Jesus had for him. And what John writes in, in his first letter, 1 John uh, chapter 1 we have heard, again, he gets scientific. He talks about the senses and empirical evidence. We have heard him with our ears. We've seen him with our eyes. We've touched him with our hands. And so all this we and us language, this represents unanimous agreement among the people who knew Jesus the most, among those who in the end had the most to lose by following Jesus. And, and, and eventually they all did lose something very significant. They lost their lives because they would not let go of this conviction, this belief, this certainty that they had that, look, Christ has come up from the dead and that changes everything. And it's something that, that, that's worth even giving your life for. And you gotta ask the question, how, how could it be the case that 11, and what happened to the 12th? The 12th was Judas. Judas, it, it ended really in a very sad, tragic way for Judas. He, he betrayed Jesus just like, uh, just like Peter did. Um, but instead of running to Jesus, he ran away from Jesus in shame and hanged himself and such, and it was tragic. Um, but then we've got, we've got the other disciples, all of them, giving their lives. Peter 
uh, history tells us, was crucified upside down because he wasn't willing to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. And so he, he, he told his tormentors, turn me upside down and crucify me that way. And, you know, you can go on and on and on through all of the disciples, all of them who knew him most, all of them who knew that either Jesus did come up from the dead or he didn't and they were just playing a trick on the whole world. And, and they were all ready together in agreement to give their lives to tell a lie to the whole world. And, and that just doesn't seem likely, doesn't seem rational. And then one of them, uh, the Apostle John, did not die as a martyr. He died in exile somewhere in his 90s, we're, to, you know, we, we, we're guessing, you know, based on the dates and everything else. Uh, but he was... Uh, in a prison on a remote island, kind of like Alcatraz, I guess, uh, an island called Patmos. And he died there. And I got to ask myself, you know, why didn't John die as a martyr? And I'm just speculating, but I'm thinking maybe it's because John is the one that Jesus turned to when he was on the cross and said, there's my mom, she's your mom now. And, and, and you're her boy now. I want you to take care of her. And maybe, maybe God made certain to keep John alive so that his mama was taken care of. I don't know. Pure speculation, but the point being, all of these people who knew Jesus most, all these people who said they saw him when he came up from the dead, were emboldened to die for that reality. There are other considerations from the Bible. Yeah, the very first eyewitness of the resurrection were shown in the gospel accounts. Uh, that, that God chose to be the first eyewitness was was uh, a woman named Mary Magdalene. Uh, most scholars believe that she was a career prostitute. Uh, she was known to have had uh, what we might call um, you know, mental illness, but, but uh, I think it got deeper than that because she was at, at various times, it says in the scriptures, possessed by demons and by, by, by evil creatures that, 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 that had possessed her from the spiritual realm. Uh, but the most significant aspect and curious aspect about her testimony is the one that might surprise us the most, and that's that she was a woman, and so this is one of the things that highlights the difference between modern 21st century Western culture and first century Middle Eastern culture. Uh, women, much like much of the Middle East now, uh, were, were regarded as second class, not you know, of the level of dignity as men. They, 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 it was said in the first century Middle East that, that a woman could not be trusted in a court of law, and so women were not allowed to testify in courts of law. And yet, who is it that Jesus chooses and the spirit of God chooses to be the, the eyewitness. You know, the, the, the apostle to the apostles, the ones that, that Jesus would say, I want you to go tell all these dudes over here, I've come up from the dead, I want you to be the one, Mary Magdalene. I want you, former prostitute. I want you, you know, person who's wrestled with demons. I want you, woman who won't be, even be allowed to testify in a court of law to go testify on my behalf. See what Jesus is doing? I mean, even this is, is another counterculture movement that Jesus is making. Saying, like, like, look, look, I'm looking at this unjust culture that diminishes women, and what I'm gonna do, uh, the first thing I'm gonna do when I come up from the dead is I'm gonna empower a woman, and I'm, I'm gonna draw out the dignity of a woman, but not just any woman, a, a, a former prostitute, to, to, to again show the world, the world is flat wrong, this culture is flat wrong about things like equality, about things like dignity, about things like every human being created in the image of God having infinite value. And so he chooses Mary Magdalene. So, so you gotta ask the question, if you're like a logical thinker, if you think legalese, if, if you're like, prove it to me, you have to ask yourself the question, why in the world would, would, would they put Mary Magdalene in here in the record 
as the validating event, you know, to, to, to say to the world that Christ really did come up from the dead because we got this woman over here who was possessed by demons and was a prostitute who says so. Why would they choose that as their evidence unless that's just the way it happened? And they're just telling it like it was. And then there's another one, Saul of Tarsus, who I already quoted a minute, ago, a minute ago as Paul the Apostle. So he went from being Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. But Saul of Tarsus was a, a militant opponent to Christianity, as anybody who knows his story knows. And yet there's this abrupt conversion that he has, and it's recorded for us in, in the book of Acts. And, 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 and then he would go on not only to write about a third of the New Testament and become, you know, give his own life uh, as a martyr for, for Christ and for the resurrection, but, but he was the one who, who would later write, you know, if Christ is not actually risen from the dead in time-space history, then, then Christians are of all people to be pitied. And so the skeptic in me, and maybe the skeptic in you might say, well, this is all circular reasoning. This is this is the Bible defending the Bible. You're telling us to believe the Bible because the Bible says the Bible is true. And, and that, that's, that doesn't really hold up. Like you got any, anything more than that. And I would say absolutely yes. It's also worth considering. I'm doing the head stuff right now. I'm gonna get the heart stuff in a minute. But it's, it's absolutely worth considering how much intellectual muscle is behind the Christian movement over the course of, of years in history. Did you know that all of the Ivy League universities except for one were founded by Christian ministers and lay people? All of them. Name Jonathan Edwards. Does that ring a bell to you? And you, you, you may already hold something against him because of the title of a sermon that you've never read. Uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and we've already written him off because he had a sermon called that. And what we don't know is, is that, that he could barely get through that sermon when he preached it because he, he was flooded with tears of compassion for the people that he was preaching to. Uh, what we also don't realize is the reason why they put that in the secular books is it's one of the most magnificent works of literary art ever produced. What we don't know about Edwards is he was one of the first presidents of Princeton University. Also, what we don't know about Edwards is that the secular Encyclopedia Britannica identified him as the brightest mind to ever step foot on American soil. No intellectual slouch. All but one of the Ivy League universities founded by people who believe this stuff. Here's another one. Simon Greenleaf, distinguished professor and one of the co-founders of Harvard's School of Law. Simon Greenleaf, and if you're, if you're pre-law or a, a law student, uh, maybe at University of Texas uh, or, or somewhere else, you might know that, that Simon Greenleaf wrote a book called Treatise on the Law of Evidence, which, which legal scholars still identify as the greatest volume ever written on the use of evidence in order to verify or disprove historic events. And, and so Simon Greenleaf was, as a professor at Harvard School of Law, antagonistic toward Christianity, and, and he was known to regularly just sort of mock Christianity and, and say in the classroom, oh, this, all these miracles, these supposed miracles, and this supposed resurrection of Jesus, it's all a hoax. And, and some of his students who... Uh, who happened to be Christian, you know, came to him uh, one, one day and said, Dr. Greenleaf, we respect you all the way to the moon and back. You, you are the, the, one of the brightest legal minds, if not the brightest legal mind in the world. And, and, and yet, we do have a point of disagreement with you on Jesus and the resurrection and, you know, your use of the word hoax to describe Christianity. And 
So what we want to do, just, just to, to play fair, is to challenge you, sir, if you're willing to engage this exercise, challenge you to, to take all of your skill set, all of your wisdom about accumulating evidence and then making a, a case for or against something actually happen in, happening in history. And our, our bet is that, that by the end of the process, if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, you're also going to have to deny that George Washington existed. And Simon Greenleaf took them up. He said, all right, I'll do it. And they, they, they said, we, we want to challenge you to disprove the resurrection. We're, we're, not, we're, we're too smart to know that we're not nearly smart enough to argue this with you. So we want to encourage you to try to disprove that it happened. And then he, he went on that endeavor and Simon Greenleaf became a Christian in the process. You can't say Christianity is not for smart people. Yeah, Jesus is pretty dang smart too, Right? Oxford historian C.S. Lewis, you know, he didn't just write children's books. C.S. Lewis taught at Oxford. He taught history at Oxford. You know, he describes his former life as an atheist, as, as a man who was angry at God for not existing. And then his friend J.R.R. Tolkien got to him. They would, they would meet at the pub, you know, regularly and, you know, talk about this and that, philosophy, religion. Tolkien was a believer in Jesus. Lewis was an atheist. Um, and eventually, because they both had a love for story, right, as we all know at this point, um, Tolkien basically said this, you, you want to know, Jack, you know, that was his nickname, C.S. Lewis's nickname, you want to know, Jack, why the human heart, children's hearts, grown-up hearts, our hearts all resonate with a happily ever after story? You want to know why it's so dissatisfying, you know, to, to watch like a dystopian thing that doesn't end well, it's because there is a greater story beneath it all that's the true story to which all the happily ever after stories point. And it was that reasoning, it was a more existential reasoning that, that was the gateway to the kingdom of God for C.S. Lewis through his friend J.R.R. Tolkien. And what, what Lewis would later say is that the heart of Christianity, this former brilliant atheist Oxford guy, would later say the heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact Anne Rice, who is another extremely bright mind, wrote the Vampire Chronicles interview with a vampire, etc. She describes herself as one who was once a Christ-haunted atheist who lost her faith in the non-existence of God because of these realities. New York Times' David Brooks, in the last couple of years, became a follower of Jesus. He's no dummy. And for that part of us that says, well, you know, faith and science are incompatible, and, and so you got to choose one or the other, because faith and science, they, they, they're, they, they are incompatible. Well, there, there are plenty of brilliant, world-renowned scientists who would not agree with that. Blaise Pascal, who essentially invented modern-day statistics, among other things, like being a brilliant philosopher and such. Copernicus, who, you know, came up with the heliocentric theory that the earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa. Galileo. Sir Isaac Newton, or more recently, Francis Collins, who's the pioneer of, of what's known in the science community, scientific community, as the Genome Project, right? And so his number one protege is an elder in our church in Nashville. I don't know if you know this, but Nashville is sort of known as the Silicon Valley of healthcare. And, and this guy, Josh, uh, who's, who's an elder at our church, just landed uh, the, the largest grant in the history of grants, I think, um, you know, for scientific research. 
uh, and I, I think Josh is going to end up probably being the one to cure cancer. He's like freakishly smart, right? And so you've got all of these kinds of people in my world and in my community. Like we've got medical people and science people and PhDs all over the place in Nashville because of the healthcare concentration. And these folks that I know would say, I, I've never understood the logic that science and faith rule one another out. Because it is my science that, that, that makes my faith even, even more beautiful because it's my science that, 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 that gives me a living picture of the artist that God is and the creative that God is. And it's my faith that makes my science mean something. That my science is actually going somewhere. It has a trajectory that's life-giving and world-changing rather than just being a bunch of dust particles. And so they, they both support one another. These are very, very smart people. And so, so what, what, what I have to conclude, with all due respect to the skeptic in you and to the skeptic in me, is that it takes more faith not to believe in the resurrection than it, than, than it does to believe in the resurrection if you are really looking at it objectively. If you are really looking at it with an open mind. I love what Chesterton said, that the, the purpose of an open mind is the same as an open mouth to eventually close it on something solid. It begs the question for, for the scientific skeptic in me, you know, miracles, I just don't know. Walking on water, turning water into wine, telling a little dead girl to wake up, and then she wakes up, rising from the dead, virgin birth. But, but, but here... Let's just say that you're open to the idea that, there, that, that there's a cosmic being out there that is responsible for our existence and the existence of the cosmos and everything else. Let's just say for the sake of argument that that is true and, and, and we sort of maybe believe that because how else would you explain it? And so here's the question. If, if that cosmic being has the power to create all of this, does that same cosmic being not also have the power to suspend the natural laws that he put in place in order to make a point, in order to demonstrate that there is a truth that comes to us not from within ourselves but from, from the world outside of us. So, so my theory is this, that the chief hang-up for our skepticism, and I include myself in that because much like the disciples, I am skeptical a lot of the time. I struggle with doubt just like anybody else. I need Jesus to come in and help me doubt my doubts just like anybody else. But I believe that the chief hang-up for the skeptic in me and maybe for the skeptic in you is less intellectual and more, more volitional. It's less about your mind and, 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 and rational thinking and more about your will. Because if this stuff is true, then that means that Jesus is making a claim on your entire life. It means that you're accountable to everything that Jesus ever said. It means that you have to admit that you're a sinner. It means that you have to renounce your pride. It means that you have to surrender your life. It means that from this point forward, there's this shared understanding between you and Jesus that he is the boss of you and it is never the other way around. That his word now has every right to come in. You don't have the right to come in and edit and revise this, but it has every right every single day of your life to come in and edit and revise you. And you don't like that any more than I like that. We don't want to give up our independence. We're Americans, by, you know, after all. I mean, your truth is your truth. Mine is mine. And let's just all, you know, come on people now, smile on each other, you know, and that sort of thing. No. This is an absolute truth claim over everybody's life, whether you submit to it or not. It's going to confront you eventually. And so what you've got to decide is, should I let it confront me now or should I wait until it's 
Too late and extremely painful to let it confront me when it's too late. Surrendering your your life means he's the boss of you. He's the boss of your sexuality. He's the boss of your money. He's the boss of how you uh, interact with those who have less than you and are less fortunate than you. He's the boss of how you engage the race conversation. He is the boss of, of how you, you know, engage your neighbor and serve your neighbor. And so, is it true? I sub- submit to you, yes, it is. And I also submit to you that you're not smarter than Simon Greenleaf and you're not smarter than C.S. Lewis and you're not smarter than Jonathan Edwards and the founders of every Ivy League university except for one. I'm going to... I'm going to submit that to you with a high level of confidence that there might be only one or two about which that's not true true in this, this room. It's not about Christianity being for people who aren't smart. So the question then is, who is it for? And we'll again depend on the resurrection accounts to answer for us. It is for well-meaning hypocrites. It is for people who simultaneously love and deny Jesus every day of their lives, like Peter and like so many others in the Bible. It includes people like Peter. Peter was known to be abrasive, known to be a coward, denied Jesus three times, like Mary Magdalene who had her demons and who had her prostitution and those sorts of things. Add to these Noah who was a drunk. Add to these Abraham who was a really, really bad husband who threw his own wife under the bus to protect himself and his, his son Isaac did the same thing to his wife. Jacob, who was a pathological liar. David, who committed adultery and then murder to cover it up. Solomon, who was a, a womanizer. Paul, who had, for a season at least, been a vicious bully. Thomas, who was a willful unbeliever. And then there's church history that, that comes to us after the Bible. I read this article um, Easter week this past year, the title of the article was The Strange Encouragement of the Church's Appalling History. And so here's, here's an excerpt from that essay. In many ways, the story of Christianity is full of light, mission, education, art, healthcare, abolition, compassion, justice. But there's also an undeniable dark side, attacking, burning, crusading, drowning, enslaving, flogging, ghettoizing, hunting, imprisoning, Jew-hating, killing, lynching, and so on through the entire alphabet. What makes this difficult to stomach is that the people involved, as far as we know, have loved God, followed Jesus, and received his spirit. This includes people that your tribe and my tribe learned from, like John Calvin, who participated in burning a man at the stake for having incorrect theology. Or Martin Luther, who was known for repeated anti-Semitic statements and racism. Jonathan Edwards, who owned slaves until the day he died, and so did the great revivalist George Whitfield. Martin Luther King Jr., who was repeatedly unfaithful to his wife as he traveled the United States preaching the gospel and preaching the message of emancipation. Charles Spurgeon, who uh, Aaron and Matt are both celebrating across the pond in London this week uh, with the release of their new book. You should get it and read it, and they didn't ask me to tell you that. It's really, really good. It's really creatively beautiful. Um, um, But Charles Spurgeon himself, heavy drinker, heavy smoker, uh, you know, nicotine addict uh, till the day he died, uh, dealt with depression on a regular basis. G.K. Chesterton, who was sort of a precursor to C.S. Lewis, says that the only legitimate argument that exists against Christianity is Christians. 
And yet Chesterton himself didn't write off Christianity because of Christians. Chesterton, you know, is widely known as, as one of the, the most witty, you know, brilliant Christians to ever live. And it really does raise the question, like if you're going to reject Jesus and Christianity because of, because of the, incons- the, the inconsistencies of Scott Saul's and, and the bad stories of church history, and you, you know, you want to get on the, the train of what Chesterton said, Chesterton said, yeah, you know, Chesterton said it's a legitimate argument against Christianity as Christians, so there, I've had bad experiences with Christians. Well, I mean, logically, would you apply that logic to other areas of your life? Would you reject Mozart because you heard a six-year-old play Mozart poorly on the piano? Why would, you, why would you turn away from Jesus because a Christian doesn't follow Jesus well? Turn away from Jesus because of Jesus, not because of me? So we play all these dishonest games and commit all this intellectual suicide in order to distance ourselves from him being the boss of us. That's what it's really about. That's what it's really about. And so what I wanna say is there should be a lot of encouragement for us here from the jacked up history of the church and of Christians. Because if there is hope for them, then there is hope for any of us. This is the scandal of Christianity. The scandal of Christianity is its universal accessibility. It's universal accessibility. That means that, 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 that there's nothing so bad that you've ever done or thought or said that it, that it, that it automatically rules you out or that it, that, it, that it has to rule you out at all from belonging to God and belonging to his people through Jesus. He doesn't discriminate. I mean, speaking of Mary Magdalene, when, when, when the spirit of Jesus said, I want you to go tell my my guys over here, I want you to be the apostle to the apostles, Mary. Yeah, you. I want you to go tell them. And I want you, it says in the book of Mark, I want you to especially go tell Peter that I'm coming to them. Peter, the one who fell the hardest. Peter, the one who betrayed him the worst. I want you to go tell Peter that there is no shame hanging over him. I want you to go tell Peter that I'm not disappointed with him. I want you to go tell Peter that my forgiveness hovers over him. I want you to tell Peter that I have named him Rock and I want you to remind him of that. Because I'm coming to him. I've got a job for him to do. That's the kindness of God. Anybody can get in on this. So leading up to Easter this week, my wife Patty and I were out on a date on Good Friday uh, having, having dinner together. It was just the two of us and there was somebody that I was really frustrated with and I started gossiping about that person to my wife and I was just dressing them down with my words. Can't believe this person, blah, 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 blah. And my wife looks across the table gently, puts her hand on mine, looks me in the eye and says, stop. You shouldn't have said any of that to me. Even if it's 100% true, you should not have said any of that to me because you and I both know that the only gossip that should ever come out of a Christian's mouth is affirming gossip positive gossip, life-giving gossip. You always preach this, Scott, gossip is poison. You always preach to us that gossip is pornography of the mouth. It does the very same thing that pornography does. It seeks a cheap thrill at somebody else's expense by objectifying them and making zero commitment to them personally. And my heart started to sink. Remember, it's Good Friday, and and in my mind all day long are Jesus' words from the cross as I'm meditating on Good Friday. My God, my, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, I'm thinking, my God, why have you not forsaken me? 
because of how inconsistent I am with my own words that on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, I'm gonna walk in a pulpit with a swag and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless God, you know, from, 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 from a Christian pulpit right after cursing somebody made in his image to my bride. And I, the answer that I think came to me is this. Scott, you're separating the world right now in the same way that religion separates the world. You're separating the world right now between the good people and the bad people and you're putting yourself on the side of the bad people. But remember, Jesus doesn't separate the world that way. Jesus separates the world between the proud and the humble. And maybe this happened to you so that you will be humbled before Easter. Which is the day of the year that preachers are most tempted to walk in and out of their pulpits with a swag instead of a limp. And maybe this was God on Good Friday reminding me how important it was for the people who would be coming to hear the gospel, maybe the first time in their lives, maybe for the only time in their lives, that they needed to hear the gospel from somebody who was limping rather than walking with a swag. Not bringing his A game, but being hyper aware of the busted up sinner that he is. So I love what Brennan Manning said. Brennan Manning is this Roman Catholic writer who's taught me so much about the grace of God. He says this, when I get honest, I admit that I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal, but I say that I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. So I love the mantra uh, of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Emmanuel Church connects my church and your church because Ray Ortland, their pastor, is my predecessor at Christ Presbyterian, and the church that Ray Ortland now pastors, Emmanuel Church in Nashville, and that he planted with his lovely wife, Janie, is an Acts 29 church, like Austin Stone. They have a mantra, and this is Ray's mantra, and it has three parts to it. The first part is, I'm a complete idiot. And I, I, I hope I've already made a case for that, that I'm a complete idiot. The second is my future is incredibly bright. Here's what the resurrection means. If it's true and you believe it and, and you're, look, you're, you're leaning into the resurrection for your hope. What you're offering to Jesus is, is not, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many miracles and all these great things in your name and you know, serve schools and, and that sort of thing? Did, did we not do this? That's not your speech that you've prepared for the judgment day. The speech that you've prepared is you are the Christ and nothing in my hands I bring. If that's your speech, then you're a beneficiary of the resurrection in this way. What happened to Jesus is gonna happen to you too. You're gonna be raised incorruptible. Your best day is always ahead of you and never behind you. Your judgment day moved from the future to the past. Your very worst long case scenario, your your long-term worst case scenario is resurrection and everlasting life and eternal bliss. That's as bad as it will get for you if you're anchored into the resurrection whatever you're going through now. I love what C.S. Lewis said in his children's story, which is not a children's story. It's for kids from one to 92, right? The last battle. It's his Narnia Chronicle, you know, part of his Narnia Chronicles series. And it's, it's echoing that happily ever after story about which, you know, he said it's, it's a myth, which is also a fact. And in the last battle, here's how C.S. Lewis described life post-resurrection for those who identify with Jesus. 
Now at last they were beginning chapter one. We're not even to chapter one yet. We're, we're still in the prelude. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Unbelievable. The last phrase in the Emmanuel mantra, and I'll close with this, is anyone can get in on this. Anyone. So there was a woman that I will call Anne because that's her name. And Anne showed up to our church out of the blue. Nobody, nobody had any connection to her. She showed up with her husband and their two boys. And, and both she and her husband had streaks running down their arms. You know what that means, right? It means probably, you know, got hooked on painkillers, you know, that, that, that happened to be opioids. And then, you know, they ran out of prescriptions. They lost access. They couldn't get any more. And they were desperate. And so they looked for the next opium derivative that, that, that they could find. And it ended up being heroin, which is a lot more potent, uh, potent a lot more powerful, a lot more accessible, uh, a lot more addictive even. And they got hooked and it had them around the neck and almost killed them. They ended up in rehab together. Can you imagine that, the two boys? They, got, they ended up in rehab together and, and they'd just gotten out of rehab and the people at rehab said, you need to find spirituality somewhere and their version of finding spirituality was to show up at our church. I have no idea why they showed up at our church, but they did and it was, uh, so thankful. we were so thankful to see them. And so, so Anne walks in you know, to the nursery area, hands her two boys off to, to the nursery folks and uh, the woman who's working the nursery and kind of being the point person, the welcoming, hospitable, hospitality person, you know, welcomes them in. And then Anne and her husband go in and they worship and they do the singing, they hear a sermon and they meet some people and, and then they meander back. And, and, and the, the woman who's, you know, the hospitality woman in the nursery has got this concerned look on her face like as if she's been waiting for Anne to show up, which she had. And she looks at Anne and she says, I'm so sorry, I feel like you gotta know this as the boy's, Mother, they, they both have bloodied a bunch of other kids' noses and, and broken a bunch of toys, and uh, it's kind of been chaos here, and we just thought you might want to know that, and we'll be fine, but, but we wanted you to know that. And, and, and right there in that moment, in a split second, her impulse, the, thing, the only thing she knew to do was scream at the top of her lung and lungs in front of hundreds of kids and parents, shoot, except, except replace two O's with an I, and you get the word that she screamed in church, and... Um, you know, you can imagine her shoulders slumped down like I screwed up then, I screwed up again and again and again, and I just screwed up now, I am a screw up. And then she grabs her boys, walks what, what we know looks like the walk of shame, and, and we're just thinking, we're never gonna see her again. No church is ever gonna see her again after this. And, and the, the woman who'd been doing the interaction with her um, became an apostle to her, became an ambassador of resurrection to her, um, you know, when she called the administrative staff of the church and said, hey, did they leave their address in that little, you know, visitor card or whatever? And they did. And so she wrote a personal note to Anne and it basically read something like this. Dear Anne, I'm writing to thank you for giving me the most refreshing experience I've ever had in a church by being your honest self in the way that you did in a moment of stress. Because what, what other place on earth is there but the church of Jesus Christ? under whom we are free to acknowledge we are complete idiots. To just put it all out there, that we are busted up, jacked up sinners in need of a mercy outside of ourselves, in need of a provision that we cannot provide for ourselves. And she said, thank you. 
And of course, Anne shows up again in church the next week with a swag, you know, like, these are my people now. This is my church. This is my community. Don't ever underestimate the power of just one little act of encouragement that you could offer to somebody. Don't ever underestimate how, how, how that one little act of kindness of yours can, can shake the, and, and, and shift the tectonic plates of the universe for somebody else. Don't ever withhold kindness when you've got an impulse to give it. So a couple years later, Anne became the nursery director of our church. And she was not a good one. <laughs> but the point is, she became the nursery director of our church. Because that's how grace works sometimes. And so about a year and a half ago, um, we got a phone call that Anne had died of an overdose. She had relapsed with heroin. And I had this immediate thought, you know, to kind of combine with the tears and the grief I was feeling over the news. Because her husband... It had happened to him just two months before as well, and it was like a domino effect with him. And I thought to myself, you know, if the gospel is true, if the resurrection is true, then it means this. She passed out high as a kite, fell asleep high as a kite, and then woke up as sober as she's ever been in the loving arms of Christ, hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant, not because you've done it well, but because another has done it well on your behalf. And so it can be well with your soul for the rest of eternity. I love what my former colleague and longtime mentor, Tim Keller, says all the time. With Jesus, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. So I'll leave you with this. You may be on top of the world running an industry, the president of, of, of an academic institution, um, you know, you're killing it with your, your business and your entrepreneurial effort, killing it on stage, getting the gigs, whatever, you're going to die. It's going to end. You know, Anne Lamott was once asked the question, what do you think the world's going to be like in 100, 100 years? And her answer was, all new people. <laughs> so we've got to deal with the implications of the resurrection, either now or then. And so I'm gonna leave you with two sets of dying words from two religious leaders and it's up to you which direction you're gonna follow. They're the only two paths that exist. Buddha's dying words were, strive without ceasing. Jesus' dying words were, it is finished. I'm hanging my hat on Jesus. I hope you will too. Let's pray. God in heaven, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God of resurrection and newness of life, God of the happily ever after story that is also a true story of the, the myth which is also a fact. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us an anchor. Thank you that you've given us some really, really extraordinarily smart, smart, intelligent people who have given their lives to this as well. So we know that it, it's, it's not intellectual suicide to believe in the resurrection. Really, in the end, it's intellectual suicide not to. And we know, Father, and we've known all along, it's not about what's in our heads. It's, it's about what's in our hearts. We'll believe in and give our hearts and lives and energies to all sorts of stupid things because of the false promises that they make to us. And so, Father, teach us what it means to give our hearts and souls and energies to a smart thing, 
that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Let us not live by the creed, strive without ceasing. What, what, a, what a depressing way to approach life. Let us live by your words, your dying words, which are life to us. It is finished, which, which gives us more energy than we could ever dream of to strive. But, but, but we don't strive anymore toward a positive verdict or toward a well done. We strive from one that's already been pronounced over us because you've finished all the work for us, Jesus. And for that, we thank you. Amen.